If you have your Bible with you, would you take it out, please, and turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. Uh, we'll refer to another passage, but this will be the first one uh, to which we will turn and read. Uh, so Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. We have a, a couple of gentlemen who are going around with the handout. If you did not pick one up uh, on the uh, little shelves in the foyer, then if you would like one of those, then you can get one there. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 is where we'll be here in just a second. The more important and fundamental the biblical concept, the more the devil will try to get people to misunderstand and misapply that concept. Don't you think that's true? That includes the work of false teachers, of course, those who are deliberately seeking to deceive and those sorts of things. But, but that concept of misunderstanding and misapplying important fundamental concepts also applies to good-hearted, well-intended, God-loving people as well. It applies to all of us if we're not careful because that's what the devil is trying to do. He's trying to deceive. He's trying to confuse and we see that in our New Testaments. What, what were some of the big theological controversies in the early church? Uh, we know there were a lot of different kinds of controversies. There were people controversies. There were sin controversies. There were power controversies. But I'm talking about doctrinally. What were the big doctrinal disputes where a fundamental concept was misunderstood because of false teaching? What false teachings were the most prevalent? Well, you read through the New Testament... And there's the false teaching that Jesus didn't really come and live and die in the flesh. And the folks who had come to be called the Gnostics argued that. And, and that was addressed in a number of places in the New Testament. Especially we think about First and Second John. John talks extensively showing that Jesus did come. And they were eyewitnesses of those things. The Judaizing teachers very early on taught... If you want to be a Christian, it's not enough to just follow Christ. You also have to keep the law of Moses and all of the things connected to that law. Uh, that law that Jesus said he came to fulfill, well, it's still in effect. You still have to follow it. In the books of Hebrews and Galatians, large sections of the book of Acts address that false teaching. Others were teaching in the first century false things about the resurrection, that there was no resurrection from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, among other places, condemns that teaching in, in no uncertain terms and says the entire basis of Christianity collapses if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And in a kind of gentler, uh, more practical way, First and Second Thessalonians addresses that kind of misunderstanding uh, with people who were Christians and were trying to do what was right. So you think about those three false teachings that were so common in the first century. What was the devil seeking to confuse? He was confusing or seeking to confuse in the minds of believers the person, the purpose, and the outcome of Jesus' time on earth. And the devil knew if he could undermine things so foundational, so important as who Jesus was, what he came to do, and the ultimate outcome of the things that he did on earth, well, Christianity would collapse. 
And, and those false teachings, it's important to note, they weren't coming from those who were Jews who had not become Christians. They weren't coming from pagans who had not become Christians. They were coming from those who wore the name of Christ. They were coming from people who professed to be Christians themselves. Uh, and, and maybe those three false doctrines aren't really what we face today. And I think in many ways that's true. But I think it is important for us to see the way the apostles address those things. They, they address them head on. And it was not just for that time that they addressed those things. But for generations that followed, they addressed them so that we and others in our time and all of the times between the apostles and us would see and understand what was true about these topics. And Peter addresses this very thing in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12. He says, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. You know what's true. You know what's right. But I'm going to remind you of these things. And he goes on to say in verse 15 of the same chapter, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Even after I die, these things are going to be written down so that you can refer back to them. Because for Peter and the other apostles and inspired prophets who wrote the New Testament, it was never about just them and the people who were alive at their time. It was about the next generation and the next and the next and the next until Christ comes again. They wanted everyone to know and be established in the truth that is found in Jesus Christ. Um, and this is how we fight false doctrine. By coming back to the truth and being established in that truth. And Peter warned them in, in 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. He warned them that this false teaching would be something that would be encountered and fought in all generations to come. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed, he says. Now this is not just some boogeyman, you know, that we're going to put out there and say, ooh, be careful, there's false teachers, be careful. This is just the reality. Peter says this is what's going to happen. That some people are going to come and they're going to undermine the very truth that you know. And so we, like them, should be vigilant to remind ourselves of this truth in which we are established. For us, Christians living in the 21st century instead of the first, there are any number of doctrinal things that might fall into this same category, that these things are foundational, fundamental Bible concepts that the devil is seeking to confuse and has confused, not just in these bad folks, these false teachers that we're talking about, but also in the minds of hearts of good-hearted, God-loving people who are trying to do what is right. And so, though there are many concepts that we could talk about in regard to this, I want to talk about one this morning that is absolutely foundational and fundamental, and that is God's grace. Maybe you know all about God's grace. I, I hope you know about it personally. I hope you've experienced God's grace in your life. And maybe you know about it intellectually. Maybe you could explain God's grace to someone else or even correct false teaching on God's grace. Praise God for that, if that's true. 
But again, I want to remind all of us that it's not just about you and it's not just about me. It's not even about our generation. It's about teaching God's grace to the next generation and the next and the next and the next until Christ comes again. And so for our time this morning, that's what I want us to talk about is, is not just God's grace, but how we need to be teaching that grace to the next generation. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we're grateful for your presence. We see a number who are visiting here this morning. And if you're visiting with us for the first time, I'm grateful that you're here this morning. Um, not because I think this lesson is going to be awesome or anything like that, but because this is so foundational. And if we're off even a little bit on something as foundational as God's grace then the devil is going to use that as an opportunity to shipwreck the faith of many. So what is it that we need to know and teach the next generation about grace? Well, first of all, we need to see grace or try and see grace for as great as it really is. Would that this sermon served a different purpose this morning. Because we could talk about this first point all morning. And we could talk about all of the different ways that the Bible uses to try and press upon us as those who would come to Christ or who have come to Christ how great God's grace is. I appreciate Daniel leading us in the songs that he led this morning. Those songs remind us and are a way for us to be taught how awesome God's grace is. And seeing God's grace as big, as wonderful, even with our finite minds and finite understanding in this physical realm, the bigger we can see God's grace, the more we're going to understand everything else that flows from it. This is absolutely essential. Because if we see God's grace as big and as powerful as it is, then the next things that we see and should teach and understand flow naturally from it. Secondly, the only way to be saved is by God's grace. We do not earn our salvation by our own works. If you're there in Romans chapter 3, let's read together beginning in verse 20. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. Therefore, therefore by the deeds of the law. Now he's probably specifically talking about the law of Moses, but this would apply to any system of law keeping. By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, no difference between Jew or Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to explain that a little more in verse 25. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He tells us that no one will be justified by the law. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In the law we find knowledge of sin. We know what's right and we know what's wrong. And when we choose what is wrong, we cannot and will not be justified by the law. 
Therefore, the natural conclusion to that is, perfection is the only condition where we can say that we earned our salvation. Perfection is the only condition that can negate the necessity of the gift of God's grace. And if you look down on the same page, the same opening there in Romans, just in the next chapter, Romans chapter 4 and verse 4, he says this, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So in other words, if you work, you earn a wage from that. And so, if you can work perfectly, if you can keep the law perfectly, you know what you don't need? You don't need any grace. Because you earned your salvation by keeping the law perfectly. What's the problem with that? (laughs) We can't do it. We don't do it. We don't keep the law perfectly. They had the opportunity for uh, 1,500 years or so, 2,000 years maybe, to do that. If we go all the way back to the time of Abraham. And they were not able to keep a law perfectly. And so Paul says, for example, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. There was no reason for Christ to die and bring this grace if we could be saved by the law. And so many of the passages that refer to salvation by grace and faith instead of works or law are referring to this very thing. To save ourselves, to merit salvation by works or by law, we would have to be perfect. And I'm not perfect. And so I need God's grace. But that doesn't mean that nothing can be required of me in order to accept that gift. The fourth thing that we should teach the next generation is that God has the right to place His conditions on the gift of His grace and even to withdraw His gift if we fail to keep those conditions. I understand that... uh, If we use a metaphor for something, uh, a metaphor doesn't prove anything, it just illustrates. So so let me illustrate it this way, and then we'll come back to the Bible in order to prove it and prove that this is what the Bible teaches. I I want you to think about the idea of an engagement ring. Isn't that nice? An engagement ring that is given when someone is asked, uh, will you marry me? Is that a gift? Is that that ring a gift? Sure, it is. Um, You know, you ask... 22-year-old me, if it was a gift, I was like, yeah, it's by far the most expensive thing I've ever bought in my entire life. I signed my life over for X number of years in order to buy it, whatever. It's a gift. But what is being asked by that gift? I I mean, you see these, these videos online all the time, right? Somebody gets down on one knee and they got the box open and the girl goes, oh, like this. Why? Why does she do that? Because she knows what's coming. She knows what's happening there, right? And she knows what's being asked when that ring is open before he even asks it. Will you marry me? Right? If she says, no. Does she get the ring? No. If she says, Oh, that ring is so beautiful. Thank you. I'm going to keep this, but I'm not going to marry you. Does he then have the right to say, 
I'm not going to give you the ring unless you marry me. Doesn't he have the right to say that? A couple of years ago, uh, this was pre-COVID. I think it, was, it must have been 2019. Um, Brooklyn and I were in the car on the way to school after dropping off Maddie. And uh, that was a really interesting time when we got to do that together. We'd drop Maddie off at the elementary school, then we'd go to the primary school together. And so we'd have about five to seven minutes in the car, just Brooklyn and I. And I could have just called that time Deep Thoughts with Brooklyn because she, was, she would just always ask these questions. And I'm like, I've got five to seven minutes to explain this to a five-year-old. I just don't see this happening. Uh, well, one morning, right after we dropped Maddie off, um, and it always started the same way. Daddy, I knew it was coming, right? Daddy, is it okay if I always live in the same town as you and mommy? And I said, of course, baby. I, I would love for you to always live in the same town with us. And here's where I made my mistake. I could have just left it at that. But we got to over-explain a little bit. And so I say, I don't want her to be scarred in future years and say, well, my parents just always wanted me to live nearby. Like she's going to remember this conversation when she was five. But I say, but it's okay if you don't. Like if you, if you find a good godly man who loves the Lord and, and y'all get married and you move somewhere else, that would be okay. And from the back suite, she says, I don't think I'm ever going to get married. I'm like, okay. Well, that's okay. You don't have to get married to live a good life and love God and be faithful to God. I think it's done, right? Daddy, do people sometimes not get married because someone asks them to get married and they say no? I said, well... That's somewhat unusual, but yes, sometimes that's what happens. And she says, that's what's going to happen with me. <laughs> Someone is going to ask me to marry him, and the ring is going to be very, very beautiful, but I'm going to say no. Even a five-year-old understands that there's a connection between the ring, the gift being offered, and your response. And even though the ring is very, very beautiful, she wouldn't get the ring unless she said yes. Well, what if, not Brooklyn, or someone says yes, but then she changes her mind? Even then, she's probably going to have to give the ring back. He's certainly going to want it back, right? And in most states, by law... He would get it back because it's classified by law as a conditional gift. Now, we understand this, and I've used, I don't know, dozens of different illustrations to talk about this. From a physical standpoint, we understand that placing some conditions on a gift doesn't mean that it's no longer a gift. And yet, when it comes to the gift of God's grace, so often we say nothing can be required of you. And yet, is that what the Bible teaches? Not at all. I want you to turn, there are a lot of passages we could turn to, but I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, this is the parable of the unforgiving servant. And um, it is not just that God has the right to place conditions, it is also that God can withdraw his gift if we fail to keep those conditions. In Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21, then Peter came to him and said, 
Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Peter thought he was doing great. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one had brought... One brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. Um, this is an unpayable amount. Some people have tried to put it in modern money and say this is $6 billion. I'm not sure about that, but I do know that this is more money than King Herod took in in taxes in an entire year. It's a lot of money. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold. Well, that's what he deserved. He deserved to be sold because he couldn't pay his debt with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Really? It's not possible. He couldn't pay him all, but that's what he says. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion and released him and forgave him that debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That is one six hundred thousandth the same as what we read earlier. Um, if we take it to be six billion dollars for the first amount of debt, this would have been about twelve thousand dollars in modern money. Now that's no small amount. That's no small debt. But that's something someone can pay off, right? And he took him by the throat, laid hands on him, and said, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved, and they came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry, and he delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. Whoa, wait a second. I thought the debt was forgiven. It was. But the king has the right to call it due when the one who was forgiven fails to fulfill the conditions of that forgiveness. This is Jesus' point, verse 35. So, Jesus says, my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. You've been forgiven. But that forgiveness can be withdrawn if you fail to fulfill the conditions. In this case, being forgiven, forgiving to other people as well. Even after this debt is forgiven, God can come back to collect if we do not keep His conditions of that forgiveness. And this is oftentimes where we trip on this uh, teaching of grace, is seeing this point and seeing this point clearly and what comes from this point? Number five, that God's grace can be accepted or rejected by us. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, God desires all men, all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Then why then aren't all people saved? Because we have a part to play. 
We can accept God's grace or we can reject God's grace and God's salvation. But let me say this very clearly because sometimes when we get in uh, discussions with our friends and neighbors or, or those who are Christians about this concept of grace, a lot of times we, we get to this point and it's back and forth. Are, are my works necessary? Yes, they are. And somebody else says, no, our works aren't necessary. And back and forth, back and forth. And sometimes we forget We want to elevate our works, our fulfilling of God's conditions to the same level as God's grace, and that is simply not true. We need to teach the next generation that our works and obedience are not co-equal with God's grace. They are not equal in terms of their magnitude, in terms of their importance, but they are both necessary if we are to be saved by God's grace. I want you to look in the New Testament. There are a ton of Old Testament examples to show this. We'll run through some of those here in just a moment. But I want you to look in John chapter 9. John chapter 9, Jesus is passing by and his disciples see this man who's begging. And they say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be blind? And Jesus says, you've missed the point. Neither one of those is right. He's here. He's here so that so that we could reveal the works of God, so that I could use him as an example. And the example that Jesus is going to use him for is of grace. Verse 5, Jesus says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground, and he made clay with the saliva, and he anointed... That's an interesting word right there. Normally we think about the Messiah is the anointed one. We think about David being anointed with oil. We think about costly oil that you use to anoint someone. Jesus anoints him with what? Spit. Spit and dust made into mud, and he anoints his eyes. And what does he say to this man? He says to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So... He went and washed, and he came back seeing. Where was the power? Was the power in the spit? Was the power in the mud? Was the power in the pool of Siloam? Was the power even in that guy's obedience and doing what Jesus told him to do? Or was the power in Jesus and the grace that he was showing by healing this man? That's where the power was. But... Would this man have been healed if he didn't do what Jesus told him to do? No. He went and washed and he came back seeing. He went and did what Jesus said and he received the grace that Jesus was offering. Who did more, Jesus or the blind man? It was tough what Jesus asked this blind man to do, to stumble through the city to a different part of the city, to to get down to the pool of Siloam and get in there and wash himself. It was tough. But Jesus was doing something for him that he could not possibly do for himself. And that is restoring the sight to his eyes. They both did something, but what Jesus did was far, far greater. 
Um, here's my uh, old man get off my lawn moment for this morning's lesson. Um, have you seen lately these kids begging at Walmart? I'm not talking about like the blind man begging. I'm talking about they got a table set up. A lot of times it's like a batting helmet and they're just standing out there for you to put money in their batting helmet to pay for a trip to go play ball somewhere. Have you seen that? Raise your hand if you've seen that. Okay, so this applies to most of us. I don't know why, but that bothers me. You know, used to, it was like a car wash or some brownies or something. And it's not like they earned my $20 by a mediocre car wash or a 50-cent brownie. It's not like they earned that, but it was different than here, give me some money, you know. Like, I don't know why that bothers me. It probably bothers me more than it should. Well... Even standing outside with a batting helmet is doing something. And, and here's what I've started doing. When I'm walking through, um, I'll even say, hey, good morning, how you doing? But I don't put any money into that helmet unless they open their mouths and say, would you please give us some money for our trip? If they just go like this with the helmet, I'm like, sayonara, kid, good luck. But if, if they say, would you please give us some money for our trip, then, and only then, well, I'll take out some money to give to them. That has become my condition for me to give them a little bit of money that they didn't earn, but give them a little bit of money. They don't ask, they don't get. And when we apply that to spiritual things, even if I were to give them a million dollars, this goes back to point one, if I gave them a million dollars, say, here's funding for you and all your children to go on baseball trips, by comparison, they have already done far more than what I could do to receive God's grace because that's how great God's grace is and the gift that he is offering. And yet, just like me and my silly requirement for me to put money in their helmet, God asks us, he asks us to do some very small things in comparison to receive the gift that he has offered. And that is his prerogative as the giver of the gift. And so maybe number seven, uh, it's a perfect number, right? So it's a perfect number for the sermon this morning, maybe. I think we need to teach and know ourselves the next generation where this concept of works negating gift status originated. Uh, and this is an oversimplification, but maybe it's helpful for us to think about it in these terms. We talk about a lot in various contexts, uh, religion, politics, uh, society. We talk about the pendulum swing. You're, you're familiar with that idea, right? So we believe one thing, and then we see that thing is wrong, and so we swing all the way over and we believe the other thing about whatever it is. And we're familiar with that image. So instead of going to a balanced truth on some subject, we just go to the opposite extreme. And so we think back to uh, the Reformation movement. Uh, have you read much Martin Luther? Martin Luther was a great writer, a great thinker. He was a good man. And, and he looked around at, at what he viewed as a, as a salvation by works system. And he looked around and he said, you know what? And it wasn't just him. It was others too. He said, you know what? We can't earn our salvation. I don't, I don't earn salvation. I don't earn forgiveness by running up and down the chapel steps a hundred times or saying a thousand Hail Marys. And, and, and it doesn't make any sense at all that rich people can come in and buy indulgences by which they can sin all they want and still be forgiven. That's a works-based system. And I read my Bible and that's not what's there. 
And so what did he, and, and really more precisely his followers and those who came after him and read his works, the pendulum swung the other way. That there is nothing God can require in order to accept salvation. God can't require anything of you because if, you, if he does, now it's based on works, not based on grace. But what is, what is the biblical position? May I suggest this morning that there is nothing that you can do to earn your salvation except perfection. Saying God can't require anything of you, that's whittling on God's end of the stick. God gets to choose what is required for His gift. And yet we know and we understand that there is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation where I deserve to go to heaven because of what I have done. If the next generation knows uh, even just these seven things right here, and there's more that we could talk about, obviously, but if they just know these things, the common misconceptions of grace and faith and works that flow from those misconceptions will be answered. The idea of irresistible grace, that doesn't fit the biblical picture. I have a choice. Unconditional salvation by grace? Nope, God sets the conditions. Once I'm saved, I'm always saved? No, I can fall from grace. Uh, Paul uses that exact phrase, fall from grace, in Galatians 5 and verse 4. So very quickly, as we make application this morning, how do we teach that? This is what we're supposed to teach. How do we teach that to the next generation? Well, first of all, may I say that we have to live it? We have to show grace to others. We have to show grace to the next generation. And in the biblical sense, that means showing grace in the form of patience and long-suffering and forgiveness toward others, especially the next generation who's still learning and coming along. Showing grace in the form of our liberality, in the form of our generosity. Showing grace in the form of consistent expectations and discipline and consequences so that when we go easy on the next generation, they can appreciate that we're being gracious. Showing grace in, in our thanksgiving and how thankful we are. Showing grace in the form of worship to God. Showing grace in offering consistent and constant prayer to God. we got to show it from the way that we live that grace is a part of who we are because we're Christians saved by grace. And secondly, we need to show it uh, in almost every passage that we read in our Bible. We're doing these daily Bible readings, and, and in the junior high class, the theme is Jesus is on every page of the Bible. We could just as easily say grace is on every page of the Bible. Just from what we've read so far, I made a list. Um, here are the stories where I feel like I could teach the concept of grace pretty thoroughly from what we've read so far in our daily Bible readings, Adam and Eve, Cain, Noah is a fantastic example. I don't know why I'm holding up fingers. I'm going to run out here in a second. Uh, Abraham and the promises to Abraham, Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac, Lot, Jacob, Joseph, baby Moses, Moses in the burning bush, the Passover, Several events in the wilderness wanderings like the crossing of the Red Sea, the manna from heaven, the brass serpent, and others. Uh, the year of Jubilee in the law of Moses. Jericho is one of my favorite passages to teach God's grace. Uh, the sun standing still, Gideon and many of the other accounts and judges, Ruth and Boaz and the kinsman redeemer, Hannah, David and Goliath, many of the Psalms, the book of Job, 
And, and we have so much more to go in what we're studying and what we're reading. Just wait till we get to the prophet Elisha. Like every story in, in the life of the prophet Elisha is an illustration of God's grace. Um, I've been working on a series, you know, when I go preach a meeting somewhere, they say, send us some ideas of some series that you've preached. And so I've sent this several times, and it's never been the one they've picked. It's the life of Elisha and God's grace. I can do a whole week of sermons from this one man's life that show God's grace. And that's not because I'm an awesome preacher or something. It's because it's there in the text. And God, over and over and over and over and over again in the text, says, this is what salvation looks like. Because I am a God who is gracious and merciful. And that's true of the Old Testament God. It's true of the New Testament God because it's the same God. And yet, the accusation that I've heard, and I've heard from, from people who uh, are faithful Christians... We don't talk about or preach on God's grace enough. Is that true? Well, in one sense, yeah. Like, we could never preach and teach on it or talk about it enough. We never could. And I used to get really mad about that because that wasn't my experience growing up. But it is the experience of others. And, and I acknowledge that. And isn't it funny? Our first tendency is to get aggravated with people who have different experiences than us. But what should we do in that moment? We should show grace by our patience and our teaching. And I would remind all of us that emphasizing obedience is not necessarily in opposition to grace. Grace is greater. Grace comes first. And if we preach obedience without grace, then that obedience is empty, an empty promise of salvation. No one will be saved on the basis of their own works, but obedience is the other side of the coin of God's grace. And then secondly, I would remind all of us that you don't have to use the word grace to preach on God's grace. For example, if you go through the book of Acts, I think I stole this from Harold Hancock. Did I steal this from you? He's so modest. He's like, well, you know, I maybe stole it from somebody else. You look at all the sermons in Acts, you go through these sermons. Peter's sermon in Acts 2 or Acts 3, Stephen's sermon in Acts 7. You got Philip's sermon to the eunuch out of Isaiah in Acts chapter 8. Uh, further sermons in 13, 17, and 22 with the Apostle Paul. You look at those sermons, and maybe these are summations, compressed sermons. But if you go through every one of those sermons, how many times is the word grace, charis in Greek, how many times is the word grace used? There's a blank for this in your handout. It's a big blank. It's a little number. Zero. None. That word is not used a single time in all the sermons in the book of Acts. Now, grace is used in the book of Acts when Luke says, you know, this was by grace and uh, God's grace had appeared and they praise God for his grace and all these sorts of things. But in the actual preaching on it, not used a single time. Now, did Peter and Philip and Stephen and Paul not believe in God's grace? Of course they did. They taught the concept without actually using the word over and over. And the point is, when they preached the gospel, salvation through Jesus, they taught salvation by grace. And every time we preach or teach on Christ's life or Christ's sacrifice or the resurrection or the word of God or the plan of God or salvation, we're preaching on grace if we're preaching it right. If we're preaching it biblically, 
Grace, like love and a number of other things, is one of those threads that runs through all of our Bibles. And so we need to live it. And when we go through the Bible, we need to show it in every passage or almost every passage. Here is how God's grace is working in this passage. And this is what God's grace looks like. And then finally, I would say that it's not just up to me to preach and teach on it. We, how do we teach grace? Well, we all have the responsibility to teach grace to the next generation. And that includes our children and grandchildren, but even those that we have influence on who are not our family in the flesh. And and I think I can speak for Harold. I can certainly speak for myself. I'm trying, and I always have tried, to preach the whole counsel of God. But if the only teaching the only teaching that your children are exposed to is mine from this pulpit, then you are at the mercy, Grace, you're at the mercy of what I choose to preach and teach. And I don't take that lightly. lightly. Um, I spend hours every year in January looking at every sermon that I preached the year before to determine what I preached, what I didn't preach, what I need to preach for the next year, and I try and preach the whole counsel to God. But surprise, I'm not perfect, and I'm not going to be perfect in all of that. So don't leave it all up to me or even to the elders. Study for yourself. Teach your children yourself. As Peter said, The apostles left these writings so that we all would have them long after they were gone. And together, we all have the responsibility to teach grace to the next generation. To teach it in word, to teach it in deed, so that the devil does not come in unaware to subvert the grace that God has given us. And as the Bible closes in Revelation 22 and verse 21... So we should pray for ourselves, but also for the next generation and the next and the next. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen? Amen. Praise God for His glorious grace. If you're here this morning and you have not yet accepted God's grace, what's stopping you? He is offering you so much in this life. Yes, hope and contentment, and purpose, and peace, and love, and family. But even more, he is offering life and life abundantly in the age which is to come for all eternity. So if we can help you to accept God's grace even this morning, come now while together we stand and while we sing.